Today we have Kathy Fetke on the show. Do you want to be a woman of influence? Kathy Fetke is a woman of influence and has learned from some of the most powerful women around. She knows how to build a brand, she knows how to give back, and she's not afraid to be in front of the camera. If you want to learn more about real estate investing or just become a more powerful woman, then this is the episode for you. Listen in to hear why Kathy's Real Wealth membership has grown to over 72,000 members. Before we jump into the intro, if you have interest in learning how to invest passively, check out my five-step process for passively investing in real estate. You can download it for free by going to darrenbatchelder.com backslash learn and then select the free PDF. Now, onto the intro. Welcome to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show. Each week, you will learn how to grow your wealth through real estate investing, be introduced to the players that are getting it done, and learn how you can get involved. And now, here's your host, Darren Batchelder. A little background on Kathy Fetke before we start the show. Kathy lives in California with her family. She started out on TV. She had a news show and a radio show. She's a veteran real estate investor and she loves to give back while still enjoying life. Yes, she lives in California and yes, she surfs. Now, onto the show. Hello, everyone. Today, we have a very special guest. We've got Kathy Fetke on the show. Kathy, appreciate you coming on. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So just a little bit on how I know Kathy. Um, This is actually the first time that we're talking, but I reached out to her because we were both down in a conference in Charlotte, and um, we passed in the hall, but we were just, just too busy, and I didn't get a chance to stop and introduce myself. But she is um, she's a player in the in the whole multifamily world, and I've seen her around social media a lot. Um, she's got two podcasts. She's an author. Um, so I, I'm really interested in this conversation. So with that, um, typically, first question I ask is how many properties and how many units you're invested in? Well, I think you won't be very impressed because we sold. Oh, you did. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so we did. Sold everything? Well, yeah, we have uh, five single-family subdivisions that we're we're still working on and building, and we have single-family rental funds. But our multifamily, we did, we did sell. But I'm actively looking because I think that we're heading into some times where there'll be lots and lots of opportunity. That's interesting, though, and that was one of the questions I was going to ask later in the agenda. But I'll just ask it now: Is like, look, there's some people. Some, I you know, I play in the syndication space. I'm in the Dallas area. Kathy's in California. Um, but you know, I know some syndicators that are like, Hey, we're at at a top and I'm, I'm selling and I'm, I'm out, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I have others that are bullish, you know, with inflation, that real estate is a great inflation hedge. And then I have others that are like, you know what? I'm not going to stop buying because I, I don't know what's going to happen. Right. I'm not going to go necessarily all in right now, but I'm going to continue to look for good deals, and when they when they arise, I'm going to take it. So, 
where do you fall in that camp? It sounds like you you guys were out, but now you're saying you're still looking. Well, unfortunately, you know, I thought that things were going to go a different way at the beginning of COVID, so I missed that run-up. I'd like to say that I timed it really well, but I can say from my colleagues that, you know, those, a lot of people who are in this space realized that it was an amazing time to sell over the past year. Uh, but then you've got to find something else to buy, right? right or just right. pay a lot of tax. Uh, but it was a really good time to maybe unload some assets that weren't as, as high performing because there was a market for it. Uh, I did know in January that we were going to see a big shift in the market. I got to speak at the Best Ever Conference and, and be on the debate of whether or not this was going to be a higher volume year than last year or or less. And I was on the I was put on the side. I didn't choose it, but on the side to argue that probably there would be less volume this year. And I got to be on that panel and on that debate with John Chang of of Marcus and Millichap, who comes out with lots of great content. But I, I knew and we knew back in January that the Fed was going to reverse policy pretty dramatically. They had come out and said, uh, you know, seven rate hikes in one year. That's pretty unprecedented, right. a little scary. We knew that inflation was raging and wouldn't slow down for obvious reasons. Uh, when the Fed came in, it's, it's, it's kind of mind boggling and I don't get it. But when the Fed comes in and, and increases the money supply by 40 percent, meaning that the money circulating today is 40% higher than two years ago, yeah, just new money. That's crazy. That's going to create inflation. And then they they kept saying, no, you know, it's uh, it's transitory. But, you know, <laughs> people like me were going, how, how is that possible? Of course, it's not transitory. It, right. When there's that much capital circulating, it usually ends up in stocks and real estate. So, I, I you know, I just knew that they were going to, you know, f- try to fight inflation by raising rates, and that would really change the, the multifamily market because you have a lot of people uh, that weren't prepared for that change. Right. So part of that has played out, right? Like you said, uh, you know, with the increase in money supply, inflation was due to come and not be necessarily transitory. Um, but the other piece still is a question mark, right? In terms of what's next. The, yeah, what's next? And like, mm-hmm. does real estate really play as an inflation hedge or is there a correction, right? So there's people mm-hmm. on both sides of the camp that are out there, you know, screaming as loud as they can uh, to get mm-hmm. attention and, yeah. you know, hey, there's a crash coming or, hey, stay in, the, stay in because if wages go up, you know, then they should be able to afford higher rents. Well, it always comes down to the asset class that you're in and and the city, the metro area that you're in. I know that, you know, back in 2008, 2009, we, we did have a real legit housing crash. Absolutely. But that, back then, our clients at Real Wealth didn't really feel it, which is kind of amazing. But we, we, had, we, we knew it was coming and we helped direct people out of the bubble markets, you know, starting in 2007, 2008, we, we knew which markets were bubbling. It's obvious. It's the ones that make the headlines, the ones where there's 40% increase in prices in a year, you know, that's not sustainable. That's going to slow down and it could be considered a bubble uh, when things slow down. So back in 2008, we were really directing people to, 
to sell anything in the sand states, you know, California, Arizona, Nevada, Florida, and buy in growth markets, areas that were still affordable, but had population growth and, uh, and job growth primarily. They'll look for the job growth. And with job growth comes population growth and a need for, for housing. So our clients back then, you know, who, those who listened and sold and 1031 exchanged into Dallas properties because that was really what we were targeting. We saw so much growth happening there. They did. They just rode right through that recession as right. if, you know, as if uh, it didn't exist. In fact, if anything, they got increases in rents because so many people lost their homes. They had to rent. But Dallas wasn't. Um, not every area in Dallas was doing well and thriving. So you really have to understand your submarket as well. There, there were people who got absolutely hammered um, in Dallas during the recession because maybe they, you know, a lot of, um, you know, the C-class properties, those those people had a really hard time paying. Right. Um, and A-class can be tough too during a recession like that. So just making sure that in the market, you know, choose the right market and then choose the su- right sub-market in that market. And the way we do that is we're constantly looking at where are the jobs going? I already said it. Where are the jobs right. going? But also, where's the infrastructure uh, being built in that area? Where does the city see the path of progress and the growth? Because if you can kind of get ahead of that, um, you know, they're already investing millions or billions, probably billions, in those areas, and and they're going to continue to do that. So that again, that's what we did in Dallas. We focused on you know, kind of North Dallas because that's where we saw the freeways going in and the the new headquarters. There was like an area called headquarter rows, like all these businesses right. coming to Dallas. And, and, um, so we weren't going into the areas of Dallas that were, um, not growing. So same thing today. So, You've got, it's, so, it's, yeah. It's, well, tell me today, like, what do you, what are you recommending to your clients now? It, you know, it's always comes down to supply and demand anytime, right? Supply and demand is the key to, uh, to most <laughs> most things economics, but certainly in housing. So in today's environment, with rising interest rates, there are going to be areas who will be more affected than others. And and so you know the key question is wh- where is that? And I would say the areas that that haven't had a lot of activity, honestly, like that haven't seen the the builders come in. And um, and bring in a lot of new supply. So again, if those we're are the, about, those those are the markets that are going to get hit the worst. You're saying? No, I think if there's if there's an area where there's growth slated, but there hasn't it hasn't been overbuilt yet. Gotcha. Um, then th- there isn't enough supply for demand. There are some areas that may have too much supply. They brought in a lot of new supply over the last couple of years. And now with things slowing down, that could be a problem. I know for sure, you know, at least in the new home market, not not multifamily, but new 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 home sales slow down the first generally when when rates go up, and that's unfortunate because I have five subdivisions we're, <laughs> we're building, so we're feeling it. It's been a really really tough couple of years with, uh, you know, with material costs going up. But home builders are going to feel it. it's going to be a great opportunity to. Uh, you know, negotiate with new home builders. I'm again, I'm, I'm not, this is not, I'm not doing myself a favor here because right. we're, we're trying to sell. It's, homes. it's hard because I mean, it's like <laughs> prices have gone up so fast. So, you know, mm-hmm. uh, in that market that even if it comes down a little, it's like, you know, you, 
it's going to be hard for the consumer to know when it when it's a good value because is it yeah. a, you know even if it cracks if, is it two percent five percent or are they waiting for the 10 20 40 you know like and, and that may never come yeah and again i i don't worry i i am not worried about a housing crash and in, in the one to four unit sector i know there's a lot of talk about that but I do not see that happening. There are certain markets that are softening more than others. Seattle, San Francisco, some of these markets that just boomed, Boise, Austin. You know, again, when you've seen prices go up so dramatically, um, it's it's not even so it's not a crash so much as a reset to what would be normal where right. there's not bidding wars going 100, 200,000 over asking price. It's just kind of coming back to what it should be. Um, but one, again, one of the most important things I focus on is staying in the median range. I always want to be in an area where the the average person can afford the average rent or the average home. Right. It, you know, if, if you're in an area where it's gotten so out of whack, you know, how are people going to afford to live there? Right. It's it's a really serious problem today. It's a, it's a terrible problem. People are, are, there's bidding wars over rental property. So, yeah, you know, that's great. That's crazy. People send a landlord sending yeah, letter, letters and having to, to try to justify why you should rent to me. Right. That's it's just really it's really sad from a global perspective and, uh, um, um, you know, just compassionate perspective. People just want a, a place to live. We have the largest demographic ever um, now facing you know, first time home buying age or just forming families, getting married, having babies. Just imagine trying to start your family and not only not being able to afford to buy a home, but, you know, at, at a typical home buying age, but not being able to afford rent. It's, it's, it's really unfortunate. And in those areas, that is simply a supply demand problem, right? If there was more supply, that wouldn't be the, it wouldn't be an issue. Right. So yeah. what markets do you think are, Poised to have that growth that well, we aren't know, already built, overbuilt as overbuilt. Uh, yeah, right. we know for a fact that the southeast has been one of the fastest growing parts of the country. Anyway, for uh, you know that was slated for the to continue through the decade. Uh, we knew that you know ten years ago, and that's why we've been focused on those areas. Uh, we like parts of Florida that are more inland and um, and more kind of out of the flood zone. Like when you go and look at, at flood zones and, and maps for, you know, sea rising and so forth, there are areas that are really not that affected. You know, you would think, I don't want to be in Florida because it obviously it's the water rising. all the way around, but it's, <laughs> I don't want it, that. Yeah. Right. Orlando's but like in the middle. I mean, it's in the middle. Right. Yeah. It's, it's not really affected when you look at the flood map. So, you know, we, we really like kind of all that, that, Central Florida and and you know up by Jacksonville, although that's getting, obviously getting more expensive, right? But growing, continuing to grow because you've still got so many companies moving from the Northeast to the to the Southeast and and people moving along with those jobs. Absolutely. So, for the listeners' benefit, um, look, you got a ton of insight into to the <laughs> industry, um, but maybe share a little bit about. How, you know, what you did before you got into real estate and, and what, you know, and why, because I think that that plays into, you know, look, you're, you're given a lot of great um, advice and great data. Um, but knowing where you came from, 
I think adds to that credibility. Oh, thank you. Well, my passion was, I think I was 18 years old when, I don't remember why, I think a friend of mine was working at KGO in, in San Francisco, ABC station, and I got to to go in and and see a news, a live news show. And it was one of those moments, I don't know if you've had those where you just go, oh, I belong here. So <laughs> I ended up, yeah, I was just like, oh, the chaos of it and the, the franticness. I just, I don't know, for my personality, I loved it. And uh, and so I ended up going to San Francisco State, getting my um, degree in broadcast communications and in political science, went to, uh, ended up interning at CNN in San Francisco. That was my first job. And and then worked at KTVU, which is the Fox News affiliate there. Let me tell you, back then, and I'm probably d- dating myself, but you, you, there was no like slant. <laughs> you know, Fox was just news. There was no slant. <laughs> right. And the same with um, when I ended up working at ABC Seven. So you know, my my career was in broadcasting. When I uh, got married, I, my husband and I formed a family, and I didn't want to be chasing fires and and murderers and and so forth with babies. So I took some time off, but I kept a radio show on the side in San Francisco just to have fun and kind of keep myself somewhat relevant in the industry. And uh, that was just like Saturdays, a weekend show while I was raising kids. And meanwhile, my husband was uh, a motivational speaker. He wrote a book called Extreme Success and was fantastic. from Simon & Schuster, was doing a, a massive national book tour on on all the major media outlets. And he came home from that book tour and we, you know, everything was awesome in our lives. We just bought our first house and had our kids and, you know, living the dream. And he comes home from, uh, you know, the, the media tour and notices a freckle. The guy is a, a redhead. He's got a million freckles, but he noticed this one freckle and, uh, and he went and got it checked. It, it turned out to be melanoma. Oh no. Yeah, and and the doctor looked at him and and did more studies and said, we think it spread, and that means you probably have six months to live. So it was this. How long ago was that? That was twenty years. Now Rich is alive and healthy today, but (laughs) at the time, we're very we're very lucky because melanoma is a killer. And back then, it it there weren't many, you know, solutions, Uh, but. He he survived it, and he's he's doing great today and healthy today. Although he gets his skin checked all the time, but he's still rock climbing and surfing and doing all those things, those naughty things. But <laughs> it's worth it. Um, but it was in that, obviously, in that moment when we didn't know that I thought, okay, I, you know, I've got to figure this out. I, you know, obviously, I was heartbroken and, and devastated, but we just you know, put our heads together and we're like, okay, first of all, the doctor's going to be wrong, you know, like <laughs> the doctor's wrong. And it turns out, you know, he was, Rich is, is healthy today. I mean, he, he had melanoma, but he, he didn't die. Um, that was the first thing. The second was, okay, I need to take over the finances, but how, wow. you know, I, I had been a stay at home mom and I didn't want to be away from the kids 10 hours a day. That, that was just, I, I couldn't do it. And, uh, and so I just, took my radio show and thought, okay, how do I monetize this? I, I hadn't, it was just a hobby, but, um, I thought I got it. This is one thing I do have and I can do, and I can, I can monetize it. So I started to look for sponsors. That was how, how else do you monetize a radio show? You know? So I went down the, the phone book and which existed at the time. <laughs> you know? Right. I, I remember those days. Like <laughs> my kids are like, what is that? 
<laughs> yeah, right. the phone book. You open right. it up, you go down the list. Right. And I started listening to radio shows and listening to who was advertising. And this was the early 2000s, so it was mortgage brokers. They were the ones, I don't know if you remember, but every yes. single ad was a mortgage broker because that's when it was easy lending. So I went down this list of mortgage brokers and I was like, okay, they're loaded. They'll they'll sponsor my show. One by one, they were like, no, no, we've already spent our budget or, you know, no. I, I just, I didn't know how to make the pitch. And finally, you know, I just went outside and I'm like, okay, what am I doing wrong? And I thought, oh, I'm making this about me. I'm calling people and basically asking for money. Hey, you want to sponsor my show? That That's not how you make a deal. And I'm sure you know this. Uh, I had to figure out what was in it for them and what would be absolutely irresistible in this negotiation. So the next mortgage broker I called, I just said, hey, I'm looking for a co-host. <laughs> he was like, great. And he goes, you know, I was looking for a radio show to be a co-host on. And I'm like, great. Well, great idea. It, it was kind of like, I just kind of came out of my mouth and I thought, oh no, now I ha have a mortgage show. <laughs> <laughs> but he paid a lot of money. He That sort of solved some of our financial issues at that time. He, I got a large sponsorship. But I came home and, and told Rich, oh, I have a mortgage show. I, I've just you know lost all credibility. This is going to be the most boring thing in the world. And, and he goes, well, what if you just interviewed his clients and find out what they're doing with mortgages? Make it a human interest kind of story and not just talking about mortgage rates because, of course, that would be boring. Sure. So that's what I did. I just said, hey, let's just interview your clients. And one by one, you know, I'm interviewing people who are flipping property, doing, um, you know, buy and hold apartments, you know, all, obviously all kinds of things. So then and you I, learn from each one of these people. I did that, and there. This was back in two thousand three, so there weren't podcasts, and there there wasn't really a way to learn it. So I learned from people doing it, and so did my that's audience. Huge, yeah, that's yeah. that's huge. So listeners, she was kind of humble about what she said, but you know, like, look, there's there is something about like she was on TV. <laughs> You know, like, like, you know, it's probably a long time for you. And like, it, it does, it's not something that like, you know, gets you crazed up anymore probably. But look, people are still like that. Like, wow, she was on TV. And you, you're still a guest on a lot of different, you know, programs on CNBC and others now. Yeah. So that really kind of differentiates you and it gets you in front of a lot more people and you know part of that can benefit you but it gives you the ability to help way more people yeah it was, it was funny to go from you know news reporter to being the guest expert you know <laughs> right um, but it took a while i mean i i didn't i wasn't an expert for those years because i was just those early years i was just desperately trying to learn from these people and it opened up my eyes to this concept of passive income that I didn't know, had never been exposed to, just the mindset of wealthy people and and um, successful people. It, it was so I'd been working like most people by the hour, making money from working. And we'd invest in, um, you know, the way our financial planner told us to do it and put 10% aside, give it to the financial planner. Yeah, right. right. And, yeah. and, you know, when, when Rich had his, the medical issues, you, you can wipe out that 10% of savings really fast. Fast. 
that's what we learned is, oh my gosh, all of a sudden we're just bought this big house and, you know, and, uh, and then couldn't pay the bills. And that's when we became landlords as we had overbought, which ended up being a good thing. We bought like a six bedroom house, (laughs) you know, so when times get tough, that's hard to, to, to deal with, but it was actually better because we learned how to like rent out rooms. We turned it into a fourplex and that's, that was our first experience being landlords and it covered everything. So we could live there for free during those difficult times. It's funny because I've, I've, I mean, I, I know that you got, you have two podcasts, so you've interviewed and you've just talked about the one with the, with the mortgage guy. So, um, you've interviewed a lot of people over the years, I'm sure, but there's a lot of people that started by becoming an accidental landlord. You know, they, yeah. they bought a townhouse and then all of a sudden they got relocated to another state and they, it was a bad time to sell. And so they just rented it. And then all of a sudden they're like, holy cow, the cash flow is good. Like I'm going to do more of this. And yeah. so for the listener's benefit, you know, whether you become a, you know, an accidental landlord or whether every person starts with no investments, right? Yeah. Everybody starts with their first, whether it's, you know, renting out your room, a room in your house, or it's doing a 200 unit apartment complex, you know, partnering up with other people. But the point is, do it, you know, get out there and do something, you know, you have to buy something. And until you actually see it for yourself, and see the wealth building opportunity, you're you're just going to continue to let another week go by, another month go by, another year go by. So um, now what's interesting about you, so you found, you know, you ended up taking over the reins. You ended up figuring out real estate was the way to go to build your finances. But once you did that, you didn't just kind of like sail off into the, you know, cool wind and sit on the beach. Like you've got two podcasts. I see you at conferences all the time. You're a guest speaker on different, you know, radio shows and TV shows. And, um, you've authored a book and I recently saw that you had a a women's mastermind at your, your home. So why do you keep doing all these things? (laughs) That's such a good question. Um, you know, we've really built a, uh, brand and it's, I don't, we've had people try to come and buy it from us and it's, it's become so much of who we are and we have over 72,000 members now at Real Wealth and, you know, kind of an answer to your question about, you know, getting or not question, but your comment about getting started. I would say that's what we've been the best at is getting people started and, and sometimes it's just something little. It's just one rental property, just one unit, just right. one rental property, because there's so much to learn in that process. It's, it's a foreign language, the whole real estate world. And, and, and just going through the process of getting a loan and understanding how to read the pro forma and talking to the pro- property manager, that's enough. Just, just do one. And it's, and, and it's scary, right? And it, it's scary. Yeah. Because it's new and... And I think the diff- difference, like, so I came from your world where people said, you know, get good grades, get a good job, put 10, 20% away and give it to the, in the stock market and just, it'll grow. But, you know, you could buy stock, you know, you could put $1,000, you could put $5,000. But when you get into an investment, you know, a lot of times the investment dollars for that one, that first investment are larger than your first stock investment. Yeah. So 
that can scare a lot of people. And I know that I, my first one, I was, I was scared about a duplex and um, I was scared doing that. And I had plenty of capital to do it. It was just that it was foreign. So how do well, you yeah. inspire people to, to get off the fence and do it? Well, honestly, you know, people should be a little scared. I, I don't mean to, you know, it's, it's, you, you can really make a big mistake and it, it can cause an enormous amount of stress in your life if you do it wrong. Uh, you know, I, I was just speaking to somebody yesterday who uh, is in, in a lot of pain because they made some mistakes in, in their investing and it's costing them a lot of money. I've been down that road too, just kind of trusting the wrong people um, not understanding it, the investment well enough, or or taking risks like buying a condo in Nicaragua that wasn't built <laughs> sure. yet, you know, right, never right. never got built. Um, you know, so when you're new into investing, generally people are honest. Most people are honest, and they don't realize that uh, the investment world, whether it's stocks or real estate, can it comes can come just like with cars with a lot of sharks. You can get the used car guy that's going to sell you something for more than it's worth or try to cover up the problems with the property. That's really typical and common. So it's good to be scared because that would force you to do your research and your homework and understand what you're doing. I'm I'm on the Bigger Pockets podcast now, the, the On the Market one, and we get lots of uh, calls of people saying, hey, you know, I found this property in Kansas City or something, you know, and, and maybe a good market, maybe you know, near jobs or whatever, you know, they're like, should, should I buy it? Well, <laughs> how can right, I know? Right. <laughs> like, hey, <laughs> should I buy it? <laughs> should I buy it? It's like, okay, the fact that right. you're asking that is problematic. You know, do you, have you seen it? Do, have right. you had an inspection? Do you know what condition it's in? Who Have you spoken with the property manager? Have they told you what they think about it? What it right. will rent for? Or you just, you just found it online, you know, right. and you're just trusting the salesperson. You know, the salesperson is going to make a commission. Right. And the person selling it gets the money. So don't trust those people. So and, there's and I, that balance. Like, you know, like giving people the edge, you know, you should definitely be educated. But then there's the flip side of people that they can analyze deals for years and never buy anything. That is that is very true. I, I have often said that fear comes from not knowing and not having the information. But there is there is more to it because you still, once you have the information and you've done your due diligence, then the, the path should be clear for you. Um, and the fact of the matter is there's risk. There's risk in everything. There is. And, it, you know, I'll just share a little experience on mine. The first multifamily deal that I put an offer in on was a 64-unit deal and... I remember my wife saying, you know, are you excited? And I was like, I'm scared shitless. Like, what happens if they say yes? I, I don't know if I'm ready, right? <laughs> and I, I think I was number two or number three in that. Um, and it traded away. But the fact that it traded away actually gave me confidence that, okay, I'm not way overpaying, you know? And, and the underwriting that I'm doing is you know, is right in the ballpark of where it actually traded. And it gave me confidence for the next deal, you know, so, mm -hmm. but you still have to take action, right? You, st I you mean, still have to take action. That's a big first investment. Wow. Yeah. I went from two, a 
a duplex to, I lost that deal, but I, my first syndication deal was a 76 units. So duplex to 76 units. Oh, and, wow. yeah. um, but, That's a good jump. you know, surrounding yourself with other like-minded people, I wouldn't have been able to do it if I didn't see a lot of other people doing it and, yes. and learn from them. Yeah, that and that's again when you say how how should new people start? It's you know read. That's that'll get you part of the way because right. it's it's still just cerebral, right? You're just learning, but then being around people who are doing it that takes it to the next level, really getting it in your bones. Yes, and then you know maybe if you are really terrified and scared, partner with someone with experience. That will that will take away a lot of those jitters because you'll have someone there who's done it before. Uh, I, I would say that's a wonderful way to go if you are, um, you know, if you're busy and don't have the time to really. I think that's do all great advice to partner yeah. with. And I and I actually would go a step further and say on the large scale multifamily, I don't think you can win a deal without no. maybe, without partnering with somebody with experience. For now, sure. you know, the number of offers are starting to go down a little bit now with with you know, interest rates going up and loan proceeds getting cut, but still, you know, the brokers are want to push the deal to somebody that they know will close. So yes. if, if you partner with somebody with experience, that's not only are you going to get that comfort, like Kathy said, but you're also going to have a better chance of, of actually winning the deal. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, if you, let's say, and I, I deal with a lot of people like this, let's say you're selling a a property in San Francisco for a million or $2 million. And, and that's a real thing. People just selling a, a small unit and, and having a lot of money to place somewhere else, then you, then you might be able to do it on your own right. in a 1031 exchange. Uh, and, and again, the key there would be making sure that you have property, proper property management in place for that. That's, that's the key. And even if there's already property management in place for the apartment you're buying, you, you need someone who can oversee that. Uh, absolutely. And that I would say the property management company is really the, the person that's, you know, on the ground. Like, so it could be a great property management company, but if all of a sudden they put the brand new person that has never done it before on your property, you know, you're going to have to have a lot more oversight than if you had somebody that, you know, has been in the business for 10, 20 years and is an expert, you know, so... Yeah. Yeah. No, I see what I, I know lots of property manager, uh, the, the on-site property managers, and I know what goes on behind the scenes. Like it, it does need to be monitored, uh, you know, because anything unsupervised, you know, things can happen. I I've seen situations where a property manager was, was doing a short-term rental on the side in one of the units and just saying it was vacant, <laughs> keeping the money, you know? Um, so there's, there's all kinds of things there, there has to be supervision over your, over your property management. <laughs> That's like- so interesting. <laughs> I was driving back with somebody yesterday. Um, we were out visiting a multifamily property that we own and he was get, telling me a story about vendors. Uh, one of his vendors came back and said, Hey, I just want to let you know that, that, I had to pay your your property manager, at, you know, basically a commission to win the deal, you know, wow. for for the rehab. That oh my is, gosh! Right is, yeah. you know, and and that probably happens, and you don't even hear about it, right? And yes. so, thankfully, he heard about it, and he, you know, he's taken action. But, um, 
there's a lot of stuff that can happen for sure. Um, and you have to, to, to monitor it. So what you've been doing this for a long time. You've been in, talk about the different, um, segments of the real estate market that you've played, played in. So you've definitely played in multifamily. You've played in single family. You're in single family development now. Are there other segments that you've been in and out of? Yeah, we've done um, lending and office. We um, did one commercial thing that we're still working through it. That has it was such a great idea, but didn't happen didn't work, or hasn't happened out. yet. So I I can give you a lot of in, insight from things not to do, and and one of the things not to do that I've learned, <laughs> sadly, the hard way, is if it's new or different this concept, it may be a wonderful idea, but if it's different than what banks are used to lending on, they might not do it, which means that you would have to find a lender that uh, is more expensive and more willing to do different things. And what I'm talking about is a, we bought some land uh, in Northern California that uh, we were going to turn into a wine village. And that's, that's basically like a place you pull off the freeway and you can try the different wines of the area. You know, I'm sure you've seen those and, and wineries tend to, be willing to pay more for those little tasting rooms because they get exposure to, um, you know, to the public and they can sell direct to the public instead of going through uh, distribution. The distribution sure. takes the distributors take fifty percent. So the idea was really wonderful, and it got approved by the city. Um, and and every you know after years of getting all the you know every, everything in line, the financing was no longer there to build it. So such a, again, a great concept, wineries lined up and the city approving it and being really excited and, and, uh, you know, the public being excited, but it could, and, still and you can't still, get a lender. You still, and you still own the land. Yeah. So we still own the land and right. now I'm just looking at it like, okay, that type of thing that's different where the, the lender can't go, oh, okay, this is a multifamily. I mean, right. they know what to do with that. Right. This is, it's just too different, even though it's similar. I mean, we're just renting out space, you sure. know, to, to wineries. It's not right. that different, but it was different enough that, um, we needed to create a finance and we were just having trouble getting it. So now I'm like, okay, let's just do something. Let's just put storage there, you know, right. like something that a bank can understand. Um, and, and there is a lake nearby and there's need for boat and RV storage. So that's probably what we'll do with it. But that would be my advice is some of these things, you know, Rich and I had a really cool, deal come across our desk that we were like, oh, we were so interested in, in doing. It was one of those wave parks where you can surf in the middle of the desert. Have you seen those? <laughs> I, have, I have seen those. They, they even have those little, those little um, surf things on boats on the, on the big, yeah. huge cruise ships now, right? Yeah, totally. So th this is like a lake, though, that they, you know, they have these machines that make it like a legit swell that you can surf at any time, and it's the perfect wave. And being surfers, we're like, Oh, we got to we got to invest in this, and and then if you were first in as an investor, you could have a house right there. Oh, nice! It was so cool, but it's it was just too different. It's too big unless you have money that you don't mind not getting back. That right. that's that's the thing. Any anything speculative like that, if you're wealthy enough that it doesn't matter if you lose it, then by all means, you know that's that's who should invest in those kind of projects. That's like the angel investing, right? Tech investing. like Exactly, exactly. You know, I've so talked we to people, away. you could end up getting one high flyer, but you might lose on 19 others, you know? Yes. Um, so, yeah. um, but you know what I like about what you said, and I think 
another thing that I think is is interesting about real estate is, you know, I my business partner on the first syndication uh, was Raj Gupta out of Chicago. I don't know if you know him. Yeah. Um, but he told me, Darren, you know, when you get into real estate, it's all about problem solving. And mm-hmm. and I really didn't. I was like. You know, when you buy single, your personal residence, you know, you think of like, well, this is my home. This is, you know, and it goes up in value over time and that's where you build wealth. But you don't really think about problem solving, right? Well, here you are in a situation, you bought this land for one purpose, but it's not panning out rather than just fold. Like you, you guys think to yourself, well, what else can we do? Like, how can we repurpose it? You know, and that's happening with I'm invested in a deal in and I don't know how it's going to pan out. But in Atlanta, that it was an office building that they're they're converting to, you know, apartments. And I think that, you know, there's there's a need to have different buildings repurposed at different times. Um, You know, you may end up seeing a, a large uh, box store all of a sudden turn into a church or whatever the case may be, but trying to figure out and problem solve is a, a key component um, to, to being good in real estate is from what, what I've been told. Oh yeah. I mean, all the way through, you know, with some of our projects that were absolute slam dunks, like we started syndicating in 2009 when deals were everywhere and cheap. So, but I didn't, there weren't classes yet. Like we were one of the first syndicators. So there wasn't a mentor for me. I just had to figure it out. Figure it out. Yeah. And so it was hard. It's much easier today to syndicate because there's so many training programs and, and uh, mentors that can, if you find the deal, they'll, they'll partner with you. I mean, there's a lot more opportunity, but I didn't have that. So some of our deals were just out of the park, amazing 40% returns because we got everything so cheap. And then other ones were just awful and challenging. We were buying foreclosed subdivisions. And while we got these almost completed homes for super cheap, what we didn't know is at that time, you know, that there was no financing. Oh, we knew that. But the cities were shut down kind of like with COVID that that happened during the recession as cities would just shut down. They'd be open just like a couple days a week because there was no funding. There was no government money. People weren't collecting their taxes, you know. Um, That's crazy. So, I never even thought of that. Cities actually closing down three three yeah. days a week. Yeah, because with so many foreclosures, they were they were really suffering. Wow. So then this was Oakland, a big city, and and they furloughed employees. So you know we're trying to get the approvals to you know finish construction and. We'd have to sit and wait outside the door with a line of people because the couple of days that they were open, you know, <laughs> it's just awful. So what looked like an amazing deal, got it at the right price in the right location, then you got things like that. Right. And then when you finally get the, you know, the the person at the planning commission to talk to you, they'll say, well, we don't have access to any of the documents. We don't know if the peers were put in correctly or the house was built to code. These, if this property was built to code, we don't... Like, what do you mean you signed off on it? Well, we don't have it. So I had to track down the developer who had been foreclosed on, and it took like six months, but I found him. Holy cow. And, you know, that type. Of, so anyway, lots how'd of you, How'd you learned. do on that property? Um, we did horrible. It was very difficult. We had a similar one that, again, that people made 40% returns on, yeah. and that one 
no, I, I, it was a loss. So I put those investors in another deal so that they could get their money back. Good for you. Good for you. Talk about the, the women mastermind that you had. Was that, was that at your house? Yes. Yeah. I, I've been oftentimes the only woman on the stage for years and sometimes it'll be 19 guys and me, you know? <laughs> so I do have a passion to bring up other women. I know they're out there. I, I know there's better female investors than me. And I just want to give them, uh, you know, the spotlight. So, Fantastic. yeah. So I just started by, you know, calling in some really top syndicators and bringing us all together to help each other, but also to, you know, help raise their visibility in the industry. So I am going to start a mastermind for women. I'm excited about that. I don't have all the details yet, but it will be announced soon. That's <laughs> awesome. So I admire people that like yourself that look, you could go sit on a beach, but you decide you make a choice to put yourself out there and attract more people to get involved. And yes, the, I'm sure with the mastermind and with other things that you're involved with, there's a financial gain. But just like you said before, like when you started, you didn't have people to go to. And so you can really shrink the time it takes to go, you know, to succeed by working with somebody that's already done it. You know? Oh my gosh, absolutely. And I would, I searched high and low, you know, for, for help, you know, how do you run a fund and how do you, you know, how do you do these things? So it, I would have to fly to New York and, and meet with people there just to get some input and, and people were somewhat guarded. So yeah, take advantage of the education that's out there and the mentorship programs that are out there. It, I've seen people just fast track and build in, in a couple of years when it took me, you know, a decade or two. Yeah. I, I've seen some people with some huge growth. I mean, yeah. it, it can be pretty crazy. I mean, if you've ever read the book, Napoleon Hill's book, right? That your mind can believe that you can achieve. Yeah. You can like that is so true. I mean, yeah. whether it's, Hey, I can only buy a duplex or I could buy hundred units or somebody else that believes that they can buy a thousand units in a year. Like they believe they could do it and they went out and made it happen. You know, um, yep. that's, that's awesome. It is amazing. So how did you grow up? I'm going back now. Like you're, you're a child. Like, did you know that you were going to be successful? Did you like, were you always like a go-getter? You know, were you... <laughs> I always knew I was different. I, different I how <laughs> <laughs> we're all different. Um, I knew that I, like, I loved school, but. You did. I Not too many people love school. Well, I did. I really loved learning. I learned three languages. I don't anymore. I didn't practice them enough, but I loved math and science. And that in itself was a little strange <laughs> for, for, you know, there weren't a lot of women in, in math and science fields at that time. Right. Um, and I, I really love school, but I, I would learn things quickly and therefore I would get really bored when other people weren't learning it as quickly. So then I was a massive troublemaker mm. in, in school. You know, if the science teacher left, I was the one taking the hose and just spraying down the whole <laughs> class. Nice. <you> know? <laughs> anyway, yeah, I was, uh, I was a bit of a wild child. And uh, right when I was 17, I just felt like I needed to see the world and 
I went and traveled all of Europe at 17. Did you, did you do like the hostel thing? Like, yeah. Backpacking. Yep. yep. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. Hitchhiking, all all of it. Um, I just, and that showed me a, a bigger world that, you know, just expanded my horizons. Um, and I, and then when I went into that newsroom, like I said, I came back from Europe and was invited to the newsroom and I thought, okay, that was where I saw, I could see women of influence. And at the time, that was important. A lot of that. And that was important to you this, to see other, yeah. other role models that have done something that is pretty fascinating. Yeah. I mean, there was Oprah and Lady Di, you know, at the time there, there just weren't a lot of female role models. And if you asked any woman, it would be Oprah because she was it. So I thought, ah, oh, this newsroom, that's how I can have influence. That's how Oprah did it. And, uh, and I, I think that was exciting for me that, that there was opportunity for women in, in, in the news arena. That's, that's very cool. So then you started to create this vision for yourself that, hey, you can do it. And then yeah. I'd imagine the fact that I don't know this to be true because we, we don't, we haven't talked before, but I would imagine that you having that vision and that you could be on TV, that you could be one of those news people uh, running around to fires and different things. Um, <laughs> so did you did you have that uh, belief that once you moved into the real estate world that, all right, I did it over, the, over there, now I could do it over here? Not really. I With real estate, it was more of a desperation. I was coming at it from a a place of I've got to figure this out. And even in the broadcast world, there, you know, there, there wasn't an understanding of investing per se, you know, you, you could make a big salary, but people weren't really talking about investment unless it was in the stock market. And of course that could go up or down. And, right. and that was something I just didn't understand. You know, I would go to the financial planning meetings and I just couldn't wrap my head around it. It just felt like gambling to me. Even though it's it's kind of funny, my my sister's husband's twin brother is the biggest angel investor in the world. <laughs> is he? Is he really? He, he backed. I mean, literally, we were sitting in my parents' living room when he came over and said, "I've got this investment. You guys could be first in. Um, it's going to make searching things on the internet faster." And we're kind of looking at Google? each other like. <laughs> oh we no. Could, we could have been first investors, you know. I mean, you know, talk about oops. Uh we just didn't get it. We didn't understand it. My mom did. That that was probably also a foundational thing for me is my mom had an incredible sense about investing, but at that time women were not given much power in that regard. I mean, she came from a generation where women weren't even allowed to be on the checkbook. It was you know, Mrs. Douglas Morrison. It wasn't, um, you know, she her name wasn't on the checkbook. So uh, at that time, women were pretty powerless financially. And I don't want to say all women, but a lot of women. Right. So my mom was the one who kind of elbowed my dad and said, you know, let's just buy a little, you know, I feel bad for him. <laughs> I feel bad for him. Like now, now it's like, wow, thank you. <laughs> right. Well, she bought, you know, so because of her, they bought some and it went up so much they sold it. <laughs> oh, that's a, that's the hard part. So I, you know, I'm interested in angel investing. When we get offline, I'll ask you about, you know, your friend. Um, but it's something that, you know, can go up so fast. And, and I've read books about 
you know, venture firms that they kick themselves that they got out too early. Yes. You know, yeah, um, so even the, even the venture firms, they, you know, who are supposed to be in the know, um, it's hard to hold on, you know, after you've, you know, multiplied your return so much. Um, yeah. I mean, you just, it, it's hard to invest, uh, to time investments. And I, I think any of us could have, you know, said, Oh, why did I do that? Or why right. didn't I buy then or sell then? I'm just like me. I, I was very bullish on single family homes during the pandemic, but I, I didn't know how multifamily would do. Cause remember they were, the pools were shut down and everything was shut down. And I just thought, boy, people want to have a house to live in with a yard. So we, we put our money there, which turned out to be great as well. But, uh, you know, I look at the returns first time syndicators were making over the last two years and thinking, well, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It wasn't like that when you, when you got, uh, no. going. But, and it no. was probably a lot harder to raise money, um, where there's a lot of money going into these deals now. Um, it was always you know, easy for me to to make to raise money. It was it always has been, yeah. But, uh, yeah. But I, I once you've kind of syndicated for a while, at least for me, I'm I'm just more cautious. I just don't want to make a mistake. Right. So if I'm not sure about something, I just don't do it. And that's how I felt, you know, in 2020. It's like I'm just not sure where this is headed. I know that the single family housing market is exploding, so we're just going to do that. And, uh, but you know, we did great there too. It's just, you know, there's always that FOMO. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and sometimes you get it right and sometimes you don't, um, yeah. you know, um, uh, so, but the, you know, the good syndicators, they figure it out, they repivot, yeah. you know? That's um, right. so, um, if you can think of, and let's try to stay on the, on multifamily, um, so, Think of a learning lesson in the multifamily world that could maybe help a syndicator out there that may be going through something similar. Yeah, I, I talked about this on Joe Fairless's show okay. uh, years ago, and it's it's an embarrassing thing. But again, it was years ago when I was just starting. We purchased a, a 92 unit in Anderson, Indiana, and um, Anderson is kind of like not a booming town by any means. Okay. You know, Indianapolis was growing. Uh, but the reason we kind of fell for this project is there was plans for the city to, to put in a lake there that would be like a reservoir for Indianapolis. And this apartment would be waterfront if they did that. So that was kind of a cool little extra. And, uh, and it was also next to a growing university. So there were things that just made sense. The problem is it was in a very old building and my, I'm just so embarrassed to even say it out loud, but I said it on Joe Perilous' <laughs> podcast, so I'll say it here. But my, my asset manager, my acquisition guy, didn't go through every single unit on purchase. So he went through most of them, but this is one of the most important things to do is you've got to know the building inside and out. So he went through most of the units, but the, uh, the broker, you know, basically they ran out of time and the broker's like, oh, you know, I'll send you pictures of the rest or whatever. I don't know what happened, but all I know is that, that those last units weren't looked at and those were a real big problem. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and hadn't been renovated. It was not truthful, but it was our mistake, right? Right. Because, so so that, that's you know. interesting because I've been on a lot of different due diligence um, 
days where, and there's, there's sometimes where they just don't let you in. Right. That's true. That's kind of what this you, you know, so situation the, was. The tenant maybe is like, you know, no, I'm sleeping. I'm getting up. Uh, you know, I just got back from work, whatever. Like, and you just yeah. can't get in. Um, so what do you do in that circumstance? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I know for us, I mean, I would say generally you're probably going to be fine. Uh, just in our case, it was probably intentional on the side of the seller sure, to, to not yeah. show those units. A- absolutely, because you, you would have priced it differently. Um, yeah. So this was interesting. Somebody that I interviewed recently said that during COVID, they had the situation where there were certain people that would say, you know, I've got COVID, I, you know, or I, I'm not opening the door or whatever. And an interesting the thing that they did, which I kind of put in the back of my head for future deals is any of the units that they did not get to go into, they had the seller put funds into um, escrow. So oh, I like that. That's great. Then they had 60 days from time of purchase to go into that unit and check it after purchase. And if, you know, everything was all right, then they released the escrow. But that that's a smart way of, you know, trying to protect that um, mm-hmm. because you don't know what's on the other side of the door. So, so I think that that's a you know, a possible solution. That's, for that. that's a really, that's really smart. Yeah. Because these ended up having mold and the city came in and, uh, they, they required all kinds of things that we had to replace the, the, ah, oh, so many things. Yeah. And so what you just, budgeted for a rehab unit was, you was know, not, blown out yeah. of the water for yeah. those, for those units. So, yeah. um, that, I think that's a great example. And, and it's, you know, you said it's embarrassing, but it's something for people to learn from. Right. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. thank you for sharing that. Um, <laughs> so, hey, what's your next big stretch goal now? I mean, you've you've done so much. Like, what do you, how do you push yourself to get to the next level? What's your next? Thank you. I, I have some really exciting things that are coming my way. Okay. With, Tell us. Um, well, I don't know how much I can say, but it's three other women who are uh, really powerhouses in real estate and uh, and they want to do potentially a show together. So I'm I'm we're in talks about that. I can't say much more about that. Um, very TV excited. show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So awesome. that's that's exciting. We're we're talking in in the works on that one, and then uh, I'm just starting my uh, another syndication firm. It's Grow Developments, and we're getting ready to. Uh, I don't want to say take advantage, but that was the words that were going to come out of my mouth. We're getting, we're preparing for what we think will be a lot of opportunity in six months or so. Uh, I do believe that some people weren't prepared for these rising interest rates and they're in bridge loans on multifamily and they're going to be in big trouble. Uh, They're going to be in big trouble and they're going to have to do some fire sales. So I, again, nobody wants to take advantage of someone else's pain uh, I have I have been in that situation, so I feel like karma's on my side now. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know what? It, it it also could be you know look it financially gained for you and for your investors, um, but it's again problem solving because yes, it could help. Even though the syndicator is in trouble, right? It could help them to be able to quickly swap somebody else in and. Yeah. 
Maybe yeah. their, their investors lose their equity and you get in at a much lower basis, but that syndicator doesn't have a foreclosed property on, you yeah. know, on their hands, you know, where, mm-hmm. where they can't do another deal ever because, you know, right. the reputation is ruined. So um, it's, it's a weird little problem solve, but mm-hmm. that happens every day. I mean, people do that on the single family side. I've, I've never invested on the single family side, but, you know, people do that every day. Somebody's about to have their house foreclosed on and then an investor comes in and says, you know, I'll buy the house for from you. Yeah, and, yeah. so that you avoid foreclosure and maybe walk with something. Right. I, I really appreciate that you reframed it that way because that's that's the kind of deals we were doing in, in 2010 uh, with this one developer, particularly in Portland, who had 27 townhomes that were nearly complete, uh, waterfront in Portland that... Again, 70% complete, but the bank, his construction loan bank failed. Mm. So it was of no fault of his own. The bank failed. The construction loan disappeared. He couldn't finish the product, um, the project. It went to the FDIC. I think there was over 20 million into it. We were able to buy the whole thing for 3 million. Are you, oh my God. Yeah, that was my first syndication. And when you say, could I raise money? It was like, yeah, that was super easy to to raise money for that because it was obviously a good deal. Uh, but we did keep the developer in, um, which we called a consultant because the bank wouldn't have allowed him to be a part of the deal because they he was, you know, basically doing a short sale. But we kind of kept him on as a consultant and were able to pay him and kind of give him a little portion of the profit. It, it benefited us because he had all the permits. He he had pulled the permits. He knew the project. He he had all the team and everything. Uh, and it wasn't really his fault that it all fell apart. Right. So we were able to still pay him for his expertise and give him a piece of the profit. Yeah, I mean, you built a win-win-win. I mean, a win for you guys, win for the developer, and and a win for your investors. Um, yeah. That's that's the way it should be. Um, so, what do you like to do outside of work? I heard you say surfing, and I think I've seen. Yeah. I think I've seen you guys uh, with some surfing pictures. So is that one of your? You know, outside interests. Love surfing. We've got a great little spot that's um, down the road, and we love to hike and mountain bike and rock climb. And what else? Fantastic. We stay active. Hiking. Have you have you done any of the any of the parks? So my wife and I are going to Glacier in in August, and she's like, "You got to get in shape." to do some of these longer hikes. I'm like, all right, let's go. Um, So have you been there? I haven't been there, but I I need to because it's really close to one of our projects. So I just need to get out there and do it. All right, good, good. Well, I look forward to it. Um, So how do people reach out to you? How do people get to know you better? What's, you know, you have a lot of different avenues, um, you know, point the listeners in the right direction. Yeah, um, the Real Wealth Show is my podcast. I also have real estate news for investors. That's like a, I don't know, five to seven minute daily little tip on what's going on. And realwealth.com is our website. You can join for free. That's mostly focused on one to four units. Uh, my growdevelopments.com website is not up and running yet, but will be probably in a couple of weeks. That'll be my new syndication company. So if somebody goes to realwealth.com and signs up there, do you port them over to? Yes. Re- yes, they'll. To the, if, the growdevelopments.com? Yes. So they'll see see both 
of your yes, opportunities? If you, if you go to realwealth.com, you'll get access to all of that. Okay, fantastic. That's probably the simplest thing. <laughs> all right, let's do that. So go to realwealth.com, sign up, get to know her. Um, she's a player in the industry. She's been around a long time. She knows a lot of people and she's out to help a lot of people. And, and I love seeing that. So, um, Kathy, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, if I'm ever in California and you guys are open to teaching an old guy how to surf, then yeah. I, I, I will, I will look you guys up. And if you're ever in Dallas, please look me up. Perfect. All right. We'll get you, we'll get you out there. All right. Thanks <laughs> Kathy. Water. appreciate it. Okay, take care. Take care. Listeners, until next week, signing off. Thank you for listening to Darren Batchelder's Real Estate Investing Show at darrenbatchelder.com. If you liked the episode, please provide us with a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. If you already provided us with a five-star review, then thank you. And please share the show with a friend. 